thoughts will bring to a conclusion our current uh, stretch of weeks and sermons. We've been in Daniel for about the last uh, month, six weeks here. We will return to Daniel chapter 10 in the new year, Lord willing. Uh, But this week we come to uh, the granddaddy of them all, Daniel 9, 24 to 27. Uh, Settle in for a long sermon. And today's a Bible study day, and what we're actually going to do whenever this sermon ends is we're going to go into a Q&A time about this sermon. Somehow, I got feverish or out of my mind enough to decide it was a good idea to do a prophecy Q&A live. And we'll be streaming it. For those of you who are sick at home watching, uh, you can stick around a little while, just a few minutes after the sermon ends, and watch that Q&A. And you can actually use Facebook comments if you want to ask a question um, from afar. That way no one even knows uh, who you are, except whoever checks our Facebook comments and, and sees your question preserved for all posterity. So never mind. Uh, but you can ask questions on posterity, on, on Facebook. Just uh, stop, Tim, just stop. Okay. Long sermon followed by Q&A. Uh, Daniel 9, 24 to 27. I read something this week about this paragraph that I've never read about any other uh, little paragraph of the Bible. Someone said, one scholar said, it would be impossible for any one person to read all of the relevant material that has been written about this paragraph. And I've never heard that said about anything else. Most other parts of the Bible, if you were to, you know, decide to do your PhD dissertation on a paragraph, you actually could probably get through all the relevant literature and they would expect you to. But there is just too much here. How can one tiny paragraph attract so much attention from Jews, Christians, and even secular scholars for more than 2,500 years? How can that even be? And it is because it contains prophecies so precise that they are very difficult to explain any other way than that these were the very words of God And secondly, because this little paragraph contains a timeline that might even tell us something about the timing of the events at the end of human history. And so for that reason, it has captured an incredible amount of attention for two and a half millennia. Remember that Daniel 9 records a prayer and then a vision that Daniel had right after the Babylonian Empire fell. So this is way back in 539 B.C., And when Babylon fell, God granted to Daniel favor in the new Medo-Persian Empire. And so, as a man in his 80s, Daniel continued living in the city of Babylon and serving in the new Medo-Persian government. One day, he was reading in his scrolls from Jeremiah the prophet, and as he read, he was reminded that on two separate occasions— God had promised that after 70 years of exile, Babylon would be defeated and the Jewish people would be allowed to return home. And as he read that, Daniel prayed, as we see in verses 4 through 19. He prayed with hope because Babylon had fallen and the 70 years were just about completed. But at the same time, he knew that Israel's spiritual condition was not good 
They were still bringing disgrace to God's name. And so he prayed with grief and with repentance and with confession. He said, we have done wickedly. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, pay attention and act. And as he prays, you can tell he's wondering, God, what are you going to do? Babylon has fallen and we get to return to Jerusalem, but what's the rest of the plan? How are you going to spiritually restore your people? And as he prayed, the angel Gabriel suddenly appeared because as soon as Daniel had started praying, God had sent Gabriel Gabriel on the way with a word to tell to Daniel. And when Gabriel arrived, he said this. Look with me at verse 22, beginning in the middle of the verse. O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Now, those two verses alone put a tremendous amount of import on this next paragraph, don't they? God sent Gabriel to tell Daniel that. And so now verses 24 through 27 record this brief vision. Now, there are no statues here. There are no beasts here. This is a a direct word from God, which tells Daniel an outline and even a time frame for the rest of God's plan. Verse 24 begins, 70 weeks. Now, your translation might say 77s, and that's what the ESV footnote says, because the word used here means a unit of seven. Uh, We don't have a word quite like that in English. We don't use the word weeks in that way. In other words, if you need seven two-by-fours, you don't send someone to Lowe's and say, hey, would you go pick me up a week of two-by-fours? But that's what they said in Hebrew. That's how they used that word. So this means 77s. 77s are decreed, meaning God has decreed 77s. And notice also that the word decreed is going to show up at the very end of verse 26. Desolations are decreed. And the very end of verse 27, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So essentially, this is the point of the paragraph. These things are certain. God has decreed them. So Gabriel came with a word from God for Daniel, and it was basically this. Daniel, God has decreed 77s. They are certainly going to happen. Verse 24 continues, 77s are decreed about your people, the Jews, and your holy city, Jerusalem. So Babylon had fallen, and Daniel's people would soon be allowed to return to their holy city. But Daniel knew that Israel was still not spiritually restored to God, and he was right. There was more to come Beyond the 70 years, there were 77s more for the Jews and for Jerusalem. And then God told Daniel what he was going to accomplish in those 77s. Verse 24, 70 weeks are decreed, 77s are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, 
and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place or a most holy one. Together, these six phrases sum up what God will accomplish in the 77s. And this sounds much like what God will accomplish by the end of the history of this world. The 77s seem to take us all the way to the end of human history. Daniel was looking around at a world in which pagan powers ruled, in which the Jewish people were not in a healthy spiritual condition, in which violence and sin were rampant, and in which the name of God was scorned among the nations. Anything there sound familiar to what you look around and see today? And as Daniel looked out at that world, God said, Daniel, I am going to make everything right, not just in 70 years, but in 77s. And in hindsight, we know, of course, that this would be possible because God was going to send his son. So let's look briefly at the six phrases. First of all, to finish the transgression. I think this refers to Israel's transgression that resulted in their exile. There is coming a day when God will bring Israel's rebellion to an end and they will no longer turn against their God. As Paul says in Romans chapter 11, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. If Israel's failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Someday, God will bring Israel's transgression to an end and bring them back to himself. But it wasn't going to happen in 70 years. It was going to take 70 sevens. The next phrase is, to put an end to sin. By the way, remember, if you think of questions as you go along, you might want to write yourself a note so that you can ask them later. Second phrase, to put an end to sin. God will not only finish Israel's transgressions, he will put an end to all sin. There is coming a day when no one will sin any longer. And the next phrase is to atone for iniquity. And that's encouraging because if you just take the two phrases First, the first two phrases on their own, it's nothing but trouble for us because we're sinners. And so if all we knew was that God was going to finish the transgression and put an end to sin, all we would have to expect is that God is going to finish us and put an end to us. But thankfully, there's a third phrase. He is going to atone for iniquity. He was going to send his only son to die on the cross for transgressors and sinners so that if they would repent of their sin and turn to Jesus, their iniquity could be wiped away, atoned. The next phrase is to bring in everlasting righteousness. God will not only get rid of all sin, but also make everything right, including changing the hearts of people so that they live righteously. He will bring in righteousness that will never end. All things will be right forever. 
everlasting righteousness. And then next it says to seal both vision and profit. This means that God is going to put his final stamp of authentication on every true vision and profit. God is going to keep his promises so that every God-given vision and prophet will be stamped authentic or accomplished. The 77s will be stamped done. Prophets like Daniel will be stamped authentic when all is seen and all is done. And then the final phrase is to anoint a most holy place. And this is a very, very controversial phrase, a very challenging phrase. Some people understand it to refer to a holy one to Christ. Some people understand it generally to mean that God is going to establish true worship forever in the temple of his people. It may be referring to an actual anointing of the holy place in a temple in Jerusalem at the time when Jesus comes again. Regardless, it means that there will be true and perfect fellowship between God and his people forever. Remember, the most holy place, which symbolized fellowship between God and man, was destroyed and desecrated. But for all of eternity, God is going to restore man's relationship with him. So Daniel was thinking, God, what are you going to do? And God said, I've decreed 77s. And in that time frame, I'm going to make everything right. You know, last week I referred to Jeremiah 29, 11. This verse 24 is the hope and a future. It is the plans that God has for his people. Not a guarantee to make your life trouble-free and easy next week, but to make everything right for eternity. So verse 24 is very encouraging, though it must have been hard for Daniel to hear that it was going to take not just 70 years, but 70 sevens. Now verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. Okay, so for the 77s, this is the starting point. It's the dot on the timeline where the 77s began. They began with the word to restore and build Jerusalem. In 605 BC, Daniel was taken captive to Babylon. And over the next two decades, Babylon kept showing up until they finally destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in 586 BC. And then about 50 years after that, which makes 70 total, Babylon fell just as God had promised. And then the Persian rulers started allowing and even helping the Jewish people go back home, rebuild the temple, and rebuild Jerusalem. But that didn't just happen at once. That happened in a series of stages over really the next hundred years. And so God told Daniel that the 77s begin with one of those words from a Persian ruler, a word about restoring and rebuilding Jerusalem. So that means that from the outset, we can't know exactly when the 77s began because there were several authorizations from Persian rulers related to restoring and rebuilding Jerusalem. It's a reminder that God tells us everything we need to know, not everything we want to know. Now, in the rest of this paragraph, God breaks down the 77s into three or four segments. So let's go ahead and read it. 
not to get bogged down in all the details yet, we'll do that soon enough, but just to try to watch for the math that adds up to 70. Verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven sevens. Then for 62 sevens, it shall be built again with squares and moat, been in a troubled time. And after the 62 sevens, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one seven. And for half of the seven, that same one seven, half of it, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. So you see there in verse 25, you have seven and then you have 62, and then in verse 27, you have 1. So 7 and 62 and 1 makes for 70 sevens, and the last one is split in half in some way. So if we do the math then, 7 sevens is 49, 62 sevens is 434, and 1 seven is 7. And you add them together and you get... 490. Now, at this point, we really want to know what the units are. If you're waiting to meet a friend for coffee and they text you and say, hey, be there in 490, you're really going to want to know whether that's seconds or minutes, right? So God says he's going to do all those things in verse 24, and he's going to do them in 77s. 490 what? Seconds, minutes, hours, days, years, centuries, millennia. It's a long discussion, but basically the two possibilities seem to be 490 days or 490 years. And the things listed in verse 24 definitely didn't happen in 490 days. So this is almost surely referring to 490 years. Israel had just completed 70 years of exile but God had 77s more, or 490 more years of plans before the things in verse 24 would be completed. So then, obviously, what we all want to know is what happens if you start from the year that Daniel had this vision and you add 490 years. When do you get to? But it's not that simple for about 18,000 reasons. Um, Lots of things make it complex, like different ancient calendars, for example, that didn't work like ours today. Also, remember, it's not 490 years from when Daniel had this vision. It's 490 years from a word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And there were several of those. So things start to get unavoidably complicated as we get ready to continue in verse 25. Now, we are using the English Standard Version for our study of Daniel but in verse 25, the ESV made an interesting translation decision that might be really confusing. Um, so if you have the ESV, what you really want to look at is the footnote. Um, at least, I believe it's footnote number three in, in Daniel chapter nine. Uh, but to make it easier, since we're looking at a variety of translations here this morning that, uh, that you've brought with you, on your handout, would you look with me at Daniel 9, 25?
This is from the New American Standard Bible, uh, the 1995 edition of the New American Standard Bible. And let's read verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, or an anointed one, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So from the issuing of the decree until Messiah the Prince, seven weeks and 62 weeks. In other words, there will be 69 weeks until the Messiah comes. The ESV translates it differently in a way that makes it sound like the Messiah comes after the first seven sevens, after the first 49 years. Now, either translation is possible. We can't get into all of the whys right now, but the New American Standard translation here is preferable and is followed by the KJV and the NIV and the CSB and just about every other major translation. So what's the point? The point is that if you put together seven sevens and 62 sevens, which equals 483 years, then an anointed one, a prince, comes. Now, there were various anointed ones in Israel in the Old Testament, right? Various kings who were anointed, priests who were always anointed, even some prophets who were anointed. But this anointed one who is also a prince. Remember, that word prince doesn't quite mean what we mean with the word prince. It's, it's a word for a ruler, an anointed one, a ruler. This surely seems to be Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the ruler of Israel. And one of the reasons to think that this must be referring to Jesus is that the math actually works out. The 483 years actually do lead to Jesus. Now, this is very, very complicated because there's no perfect way to do the math because there are too many variables, like the Persian rulers who gave several different permissions related to the Jews returning to their land. Well, which one do you use as your starting point? And even if we choose one of those, it's not like you can go, um, it's not like you can, you know, go check the Persian royal Google calendar and be like, oh, right, that was on March 18th. It's, it's a little hard to even date exactly when those decrees happened. And then there are big calendar complications because they didn't have a standardized calendar in the same way we have today. And then there's a big question about whether these are solar years of 365 and a quarter-ish days or whether these are more like lunar years or prophetic years of 360 days, which are common in Scripture. And then there's the question of whether the end point of the 483 years would be Jesus' birth or Jesus' baptism or the triumphal entry or the crucifixion. And then there's the debate about exactly when the crucifixion happened. So once you put all those variables together, it would seem like they're about um, again, 18 million possibilities here. But within those, you can sort down to some that are most likely. You can get rid of some that are very unlikely. And here's what you need to know. You can do the math in several different ways, and it will remarkably lead right to Jesus. 
you can use one set of variables and 483 years ends up right at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, like his baptism. You can use another set of variables and 483 years ends up right at the triumphal entry, even, even possibly the exact day. Most recently, um, both Dr. Paul Tanner, who just published a fantastic commentary on Daniel just two years ago, and Dr. John Lennox, who's professor of mathematics at Oxford, have demonstrated that there is a very reasonable possibility that the 483 years lead directly to the month Nisan in AD 33, which is increasingly the month when conservative scholars are certain Christ died. It's even possible to use a set of variables that end up on the exact date of the triumphal entry or the exact date of the crucifixion. Now, there's no way for anybody to say this one is the right answer, even though <laughs> people do it all the time. There are way too many variables. There are several possible right answers, but that should amaze you. Remember when this was written? Somewhere in the 500s BC. Remember when even the most cynical non-Christian scholars think this was written in the 160s BC. And yet you can do the math several different ways and it leads you right to Jesus. Even the month, even the week, even the day. You might also remember, as we mentioned before, that there's a chance that the wise men who came to see Jesus, who were Persian magi, kind of like what Daniel was, that they knew about the coming king of the Jews from these prophecies of Daniel and that they were watching for the star because of these calculations, that that's how they knew to watch for the Jewish Messiah to come. Again, that's a guess. I can't prove that to you with 100% certainty, but it's a very reasonable guess. These are remarkable. These are, frankly, stunning things in 2,500-year-old literature because it is actually the inspired Word of God who can tell the future, and he did. Now, before we continue on to verse 26, one more little detail. So if I am arguing that the seven weeks and the 62 weeks, the seven sevens and 62 sevens should be combined to lead up to Jesus, then why is it divided into seven and 62 in the first place? Why not just say 69? And it is admittedly a hard question. Uh, the best guess is that the end of verse 25 actually describes what happened in the first seven sevens. The end of verse 20, 25, if you read it in the New American Standard again, says, it will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. That may be describing a 49-year time period in which they finished the rebuilding of Jerusalem under Nehemiah, though under distress, as you can read about in the book of Nehemiah, of course. And that 49-year time period would also roughly correspond to the time when the events and prophecies of the Hebrew Scriptures came to an end. So that may be what the first seven is. 
Um, the time that leads up to the end of the rebuilding of Jerusalem and really the end of the Old Testament. And then you have 62 more sevens to get you to Jesus. Um, But that is uh, admittedly guessing. Let's continue to verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Now that word after is really interesting. It makes it happen. It makes it sound like what happened next wasn't at the exact moment when the 62 sevens ended, but after it, maybe shortly after it, almost like there's some space between the 69th seven and the 70th seven. Now, what does it say happens after the 62 weeks or after the 69 weeks? An anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. So we've already said that the 483 years does lead to Jesus, the anointed one, the ruler. Now it says that after the 483 years, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. Jesus was definitely cut off. This word can refer to a violent death. And by all human appearances, he had nothing. It looked as if he was defeated. The unbelieving Jewish leaders and the Romans had won. Everything Jesus had done and taught was in vain, or at least so it appeared until Sunday morning. So Daniel's prophecy not only included the coming of the Messiah, but also the violent death of the Messiah and the apparent loss, failure, and emptiness. And realize that was not the kind of prophecy you just make up. Nobody was expecting a Messiah who comes, experiences a violent death, and appears to lose everything. Nobody who made messianic predictions made that kind of prediction except Daniel, except this word from God to Daniel. The Messiah was supposed to come and triumph, but God knew exactly what he was revealing to Daniel well over 500 years in advance. Back to verse 26, And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city And the sanctuary. So, sometime apparently after the death of Jesus, the people of the prince who is to come destroy Jerusalem and the temple. So, who is this ruler who is to come? It's probably not Jesus, though some Christians have taken it that way, but some other, some destructive prince. And the people of this prince destroy Jerusalem and the temple. The verse says, it, its end shall come with a flood, a fast and thorough destruction. In AD 70, about 40 years after Jesus, the armies of the Roman emperor, well, he wasn't Roman emperor yet. He would soon be Roman emperor Titus. They destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. Josephus claims that more than a million people were killed or died during that siege and a hundred thousand more enslaved. The treasures of the Jerusalem temple were taken back to Rome and paraded through the streets for everyone to see. And so it seems that this verse is probably referring to that destruction. So God told Daniel that the Messiah would die of violent death and have nothing and the city of Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed. And both of those things happened. Poor Daniel. He, 
He had already seen Jerusalem and the temple built and destroyed once. And now God told him that the city and the temple were going to be built again and destroyed again. You realize that the fact that God's telling Daniel that the temple's going to be destroyed again means that God was telling Daniel that the temple was going to be rebuilt again, even though that wasn't going to happen for several decades later. So Daniel's being told that this whole thing is going to happen again. And all of this fits very well with what actually happened in history. But where it starts to get really interesting is when we look again at verse 26 and watch for the hints that the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 wasn't actually the end of the story. It says, And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Isn't it interesting how it says, its end shall come, and then it says, and to the end there shall be war. As if Jerusalem was going to be destroyed, the end was going to come, and yet that wasn't the end. It was an end, but not the end. There would still be war to the end. And then it also says, desolations are decreed. Maybe that's referring just to the AD 70 desolations, but it says it after, as if maybe there were still more desolations coming past AD 70, past the time when Jerusalem was destroyed. It also says in verse 26 that the city and sanctuary were destroyed by the people of the prince who is to come, which might just be referring to Titus, but might mean there's a ruler coming later who's still to come. Now, that probably sounds really confusing, but the good news is that we've already had an example of something similar in Daniel. We've already had an example of a vision that told about something later than Daniel in Daniel's future, okay? But it was also telling about something even further into the future. You remember that? Remember Antiochus IV, who came several hundred years after Daniel, and God told Daniel that he was coming. And yet we saw that God wasn't just talking about Antiochus IV. God said things that surely have to apply to somebody past him, to, to, to a ruler who will be in power when Jesus comes again. And Jesus did not come again during the reign of Antiochus. And so we asked the question, why does God tell us so much about Antiochus? And the answer we gave was because Antiochus IV was the closest thing history has ever seen to what the terrifying final evil ruler will be like. How can we start to understand what that future ruler will be like? By learning about the person in history who was most like that future ruler, Antiochus IV. So you might think of it like um, viewing the future ruler through the lens of Antiochus IV. Uh, can I be camera nerdy for just a minute? Uh, I, I like photography and modern mirrorless cameras. Uh, 
the point of a mirrorless camera is that instead of there being a, a mirror so that you're actually looking out the lens at what's in front of the camera, there's actually a little screen in your viewfinder. You're looking at a little screen which is showing you what the camera lens is seeing. There's a little bit of a parallel to what was going on with Antiochus. You look in the vision of Daniel chapter 8, and you're looking at Antiochus on the little screen, but actually Antiochus is a lens through which you're viewing something in the future that you can't see yet. Or I think of it like those, a little bit like those things, you know, at like national parks, those binocular things that you can put a quarter in or whatever and, you know, look through this terrible view of something out there. Looking at the final terrible ruler through the lens of Antiochus IV. That seems to be the same thing that's going on here at the end of Daniel chapter 9. We are looking at the end of Jerusalem and the temple. We're looking actually at the end of human history through the lens of AD 70. How could we learn what that final assault on Jerusalem will be? The one that happens right before Jesus comes again, because it hasn't happened yet, (laughs) because Jesus hasn't come back the second time. How can we know what that will be like? Well, God says, look at AD 70 and the Roman destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, and you'll start to get a little picture of what it will be like. So here's what's really remarkable. If I take my national park binocular thing, and I look through the lens of Antiochus IV at the final terrible ruler who will be in power when Jesus comes again, and then I take a different binocular, Daniel 9, AD 70, and I look through that lens at the final terrible assault on Jerusalem right before Jesus comes again, guess what? I'm looking at the same thing. Because it is that final ruler who leads that final assault when Jesus comes again. So through two different sets of binoculars, through Antiochus IV in in the 160s BC, and through Titus and the Romans in AD 70, I look ahead at something God has not done yet until Jesus comes again, and it turns out I'm looking at the same thing, the same time in human history. So Daniel 9, verse 26, is about the death of Jesus, followed by the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70, yet it's pointing further ahead to something that's going to happen right before Jesus comes again. And this is going to be confirmed when we read verse 27, because verse 27 is going to describe something that did not happen in the first century AD. But let's start back in verse 26 again. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. So that's probably the crucifixion of Jesus. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's probably the armies of Titus in AD 70, though the prince who is to come might still be in the future, another prince. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. So this seems to be looking past A.D. 70 to future wars and future desolations. Now, verse 27, And he, that's the prince who is to come, 
shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. So here's the last seven, the 70th seven. The prince who is to come shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. So here's our final seven. And this is what's usually called Daniel's 70th week. So what happens in the final seven years of God's plans? The prince who is to come makes a covenant with somebody. Well, that is really vague, isn't it? He's going to make a covenant. What does it say? With many? What does that mean? Well, thankfully we have the next phrases. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Aha! Now that's a huge clue. Because back in Daniel 7, we learned about that terrible final ruler who attacks the people of God, and he tries to change the times and the law. And in chapter 8, through the lens of Antiochus, we learned that that final ruler will remove the regular sacrifices in the Jewish temple, just like Antiochus did. And here it says he's going to do that for half of the week. And in chapter 7, it says that the, God, the people of God will be given into his hand for time, times, and half a time, which sounds like three and a half years or half of the final week, half of the final seven years of God's plans. So that makes it very likely that the ruler in Daniel 9.27, the prince who is to come, is the same ruler as Daniel 7 and 8 because he does the same thing in the same amount of time. So maybe this means that when this terrible final ruler comes to power, God is going to let him rule for seven years before Jesus comes again. And maybe the seven years begin with some sort of strong covenant that he makes. Now, Bible prophecy teachers say that this is a peace agreement he makes with the Jews. That's possible, but it is speculation. The Bible does not say that, but it's possible. And then, so that the terrible final ruler comes to power with seven years to reign on God's decreed time schedule, he makes some sort of strong covenant to establish his power, and then halfway through the seven years, he puts an end to sacrifice and offering. And though we don't have time to go look at this this morning, those, that corresponds well with events described in the book of Revelation, which talks about the terrible final ruler, his war on the saints, his three and a half years of sacrilege and intense terror. So back to verse 27 now. And he, the ruler who is to come, shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. That's seven years, the 70th seven that God has decreed. And for half of the week, which would be three and a half years, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. He's going to remove the worship in the Jerusalem temple, just like Daniel 8 told us. And then it says, And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now, it is, it is really difficult to translate and to interpret the end of that verse, but the number one thing we need to see is that when this ruler is in power, the decreed end comes. So 
what's the decreed end? I mean, what have we seen repeatedly in Daniel? We've seen that Jesus comes and the final stone kingdom pulverizes all the others and the kingdom of God fills the entire earth and everlasting righteousness is brought in. That's the decreed end and it comes during the reign of this ruler. That didn't happen in AD 70. It didn't happen in the first century. And so it sounds like Jesus will come again at the end of these seven years when there is a desolator causing abominations in Jerusalem, which again goes right back to Daniel 7, 8 and ahead to Revelation. A terrible final ruler who comes to power Seven years he's got to reign on God's time schedule. He makes some sort of strong covenant to establish his power. And then halfway through the seven years, he puts an end to sacrifice and offering. And he does something that is abominations and that is desolating. Probably First Thessalon- I mean, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, he seats himself as God in the temple. Revelation 11 verse 2 says they trample the holy city for 42 months and then Jesus comes again and destroys him. And so, though Christians have taken a variety of positions on this throughout the centuries, I believe it's likely that the 70th week is still in the future. That 69 weeks are behind us and the 70th week is still to come in its finality, in its final fulfillment. Okay. You made it to the end of maybe the most challenging paragraph in the Old Testament to interpret. Now, as I was just saying, Christians have historically interpreted this paragraph in two very different ways. And let me reassure you first, that even though Christians have interpreted this in two very different ways, they do not disagree at all about what Jesus accomplished, and they don't disagree at all about what the end of all this is. They just disagree about what the end of human history is going to be like. So it's okay for us to disagree on this stuff. And basically, some Christians believe that all of these things were fulfilled in the first century. They believe that all of the 77s Everything described here um, is, is past, though in a sense it, it reaches its finality in the, at the second coming. But um, they believe all 77s are done, including everything in verses 26 and 27. The more I study that view, the less I could hold to it myself. Um, I, I just I can't do interpretively what they have to do to arrive at that view. But it's a position held by many wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ, including some people in our church family. And so it is, it is worthy of our, our careful respect. The view that I've taught today is different. It teaches that the first 69 sevens led up to the coming of Christ, but then the 70th seven doesn't come until later. That there was a destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70, but it wasn't the end of the story because Jesus didn't come again in AD 70. These things were not completely fulfilled in the first century. And so just like Antiochus IV was a lens to look forward and see a terrible final ruler, so 
The destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 was a lens to look forward and see a terrible final assault on Jerusalem right before Jesus comes again. All right, so we'll go to Q&A in a little while, but that's, let, me, let me close in a different way because I realize you might be thinking, good grief, I could never figure all that out. And so there's just no use for somebody like me to read something like Daniel 9, 24 through 27. That would be a terrible thing to conclude. Um, but understandable, understandable that you might feel like, Pastor Tim, it would have been really cool if you just would have given us one of those charts of the 70 weeks of Daniel and just told us what all this means and we could have just gone home and been happy and known, known it all. Um, but now you guys know I like charts. I mean, I, I'm the guy who gave you this handout, okay? So it's not that I don't like charts, but there are a few there are some weaknesses of prophecy charts in general. Don't mean, that doesn't mean they're not valuable, but that you need to be aware of. And I won't list all those weaknesses, but I'll mention two. One of the things that drives me crazy is that those charts don't distinguish between the things on the charts that are clearly Bible and the things that are speculation. Like, if you take a, a chart of Daniel's 70 weeks and the, especially the 70th, seven, it's going to say at the beginning of that week, the Antichrist makes a peace agreement with the nation of Israel. Well, maybe, but if I go to show you in the Bible where I can prove that to you, I cannot do it. It is a guess. But the very next thing on that chart might be something that the Bible just states plainly. It's just fact. That drives me batty because when you look at the chart, given to you by a Bible teacher, your assumption is that everything on there is Bible fact. They need some way to like highlight the stuff they're guessing about. I mean, honestly, just like put it in yellow. <laughs> it's okay to guess with some of this and to try to say, hmm, I wonder how this fits together. Just tell us when you are. Don't state it dogmatically as if it's fact. So that's one danger. But even more importantly, if you just take the chart and then you say to yourself, ah, now, I never have to read Daniel 9, 24 to 27. And I wouldn't understand it even if I read it. So I've just got the chart and I'm good. That would be very bad because all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable to teach you what is wrong, to teach you what is right, to teach you how to make the wrong right and to teach you how to keep it right. In other words, it's profitable to change your heart through Jesus. And so I want to close this morning by taking this, go to your conclusion. I wrote out the text, right? I just want us to kind of like pretend like we're doing our like kind of normal Bible reading. And we come to Daniel 9 and we don't have three hours or 30 hours or 300 hours to research Daniel 9, but we would just love for God to nourish our hearts. Is there anything in the maybe most challenging paragraph to interpret in the whole Old Testament, is there anything that might nourish your heart, even if you're not like a Bible prophecy guru? Okay, Daniel 9, 24, 77s. So here I've got a time frame, and God's going to do something. And the end of the verse tells me what he's going to do in those 77s. And you know what? That is really meaningful. Yesterday, I went to the hospital to visit somebody. 
and unrelated to why I was there, I just happened to walk through and see something horrifying and just absolutely heart-wrenching. Um, it just rocked my world. And it was totally out of the blue. I didn't know it was coming. And as I walked away from the hospital yesterday afternoon, I was saying, God, 77s, and you're going to make it all right. I believe it. That's a pretty good start, isn't it? Christians can disagree about the 77s, but it matters, right? It's not just like Bible trivia. 77s are decreed. My God makes decrees. He says he's going to do stuff, and he says stuff's going to happen, and it does. What he decrees happens. And in this passage, that means the end is going to happen. It's going to be poured out on everything that's wrong and evil in this world. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. Remember, we saw that word your back up in his prayer like 20 times. Because God loves his people. He claims them for his own. In the new covenant, he makes them his temple. They are his precious people. Never just pawns, never just things. Your people, your city. And what's he going to do? He's going to finish the transgression, put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness. We already talked about all that, but that is just rich, 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 rich portrayal of what God is going to do. He is going to make all things new. There's that word seal in verse 24. That's a, that's a precious New Testament word. The Spirit is the seal, the guarantee of what God has done for you in Christ. Verse 25 reminds us of an anointed one, a prince whom God has sent for us. Oh, by the way, I skipped over a word in verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore. was one of my favorite words in all the Bible. God is a God who restores. With God, what has been ruined is not worthless. What has been damaged is not hopeless. God can restore. And, and it also says, it will be built again. See that a little bit later in the verse? To restore and build. And then later it says, for 62 weeks it shall be built again. God is a God who builds again. Jerusalem is destroyed, then rebuilt. Destroyed, then rebuilt. God is a rebuilder of broken things. And then verse 25 talks about an anointed one, a prince, that God anointed him. That, that means God set him apart for you. God sent him for you. And Jesus is the anointed prophet, priest, and king for you. Verse 26, after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing, which is a great reminder of the price Jesus paid for us, humbling himself all the way to a violent, unfair, public death on a cross. And the world mocked, for it seemed that Jesus had nothing. As Paul writes, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become 
rich. He gave up everything that you might gain everything. Also in verse 26, that little phrase, after the 62 weeks, reminds us of what an incredible predictive prophecy. Jesus came just when God said he would. And then the rest of verses 26 and 27, they're hard, but there are lots of words in here that remind us that as God's people, we're going to be attacked and we're going to be persecuted, that remind us that the world's going to be full of wars and abominations and desolations. So when we look out at the world and we see those things, we say, yeah, God said it would be like this. God already told us about this, and that's encouraging. Remember that the purpose of the book of Daniel is to guide, comfort, and prepare the people of God as they live under the authority of the world's political powers until Jesus comes again. And also, the stages, you know how it has seven, and then 62, and then verse one? That that in itself, regardless of what we think about the exact timing, is just such an encouragement because you might say, yeah, you know, God has promised all this stuff, And God says to Daniel, Daniel, it's not going to be 70 years. It's going to be more. And you might say, well, that's what God says about all my prayers. God always says, not now, later. And I'm beginning to wonder if God's ever going to. The reason why the 77s are broken up into sections is so that you can look back and say, hey, look, we haven't gotten to the end of 70 yet, but God did seven and God did 62. We can look back and see that God did keep his promises just when he said he would keep his promises. And so when we're praying and when we're saying, God, would you do this? And it seems like God's answers are always not now, later. We can say he's still going to. I know he is because I can look back and see what he's done. And then finally, as verse 27 ends, the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. That is the comfort of judgment just as we began in Daniel chapter 7. The terrible final ruler doesn't finally win. Jesus comes in triumph. The stone pulverizes the statue of the world's empires. And our king is king of kings forever and ever. And we inherit a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Now, I'm not saying that all of us would notice all of those things in just our regular Bible reading. But you might notice one of those things or two of those things or three of those things, and come out of Daniel 9, 24 through 27, not with all the prophecy figured out, and not with a perfect chart in your head that you could explain, but with your heart nourished by the word of God. See that? That's what I long for for you after these things that we have talked about this morning. I'm not saying that we should ignore the details. I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to think it through and even chart things out. But my point is that even some of the most complicated sections of prophetic scripture are full of wonderful, encouraging, challenging truths that really any of us can see and understand. This paragraph of scripture ultimately shows us who God is. And for all the challenges in this paragraph, the God depicted here is awesome. And he is our God. That's why I called it the God of the 77s. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, all that you are for us in Christ and all that you have revealed to us in the word of Christ. And I pray that you might use this this morning both to encourage your people greatly with what you've done through Christ, with the gospel, with the hope of resurrection and the day when you're going to make all things new, and also with the encouragement that they can read all of your word and be nourished by it. So would you strengthen the faith of your people and and bless us also as we try to talk more about this in a few minutes. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.